We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're joined by three eminent historians to discuss great women from global history. Hosting this conversation, we have Professor of History, author and broadcaster Kate Williams, and joining her is prize-winning historian Simon Sebag Montefiore, whose latest book is The World of Family History, and award-winning novelist, playwright and essayist Kate Moss, whose latest book is Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, How Women Also Built the World. Let's join our host, Kate Williams, now with more. Let's start with Kate, uh, this just brilliant book. So you've got so many amazing women here from all over the globe. And uh, warrior queens, quite revolutionary, so, such a range of female achievement and female endeavor. Can you take us through a few of your categories and where you even start writing a book like this? Well, I mean, Kate, you know where this book started. It was, it was partly because I was publishing a novel into the lockdown. And I really enjoy going out and meeting readers and listening to what people think about my books. And I wasn't going to be able to do any of that. So I just did that thing. I I asked a couple of friends, you were one of them, uh, Lee Child, Anthony Horovitz, uh, Paula Hawkins, range of people to name one woman from history they wanted to celebrate or thought should be better known. And everybody gave me some answers. And I thought, oh, this is really wonderful because It felt very bleak, didn't it? You know, that lockdown, that last lockdown of January 2021. And so I pushed it out on social media and I've never gone viral as myself. Obviously, normally when I go viral, it's the other Kate Moss. And um, (laughs) I suddenly had, within days, thousands of people from all over the world nominating the women they wanted to celebrate. So a young woman from China saying, have you heard of the poet Ding Ling, who was imprisoned by the communist state, but she wrote feminist poetry. Another young woman from Saudi Arabia saying, do you know Huda Shirawi, who had come back from the Women's Suffrage Conference in 1923 and taken off her veil at Cairo Railway Station? And here we are, 99 years later, still having those conversations about women being allowed to wear what they want to wear. And so out of that came the book. And of course, it's it's devastating in a way because there are thousands, millions of women that could be in the book. But at the same time, it became clear that there was a narrative. And the narrative was, why are women left out of history? If they're left out of history, why does that happen? And what can we do about it? And does it matter, actually? You know, that that idea of what is significant in history. And so I started to group together women from all sorts of different disciplines. And it, it in a way, it settled itself like a pack of cards, that there were women in the law, faith, conservation, you know, all of these kind of things. And I suppose what I discovered was very straightforward. I'm not a historian. You are uh, now. You are. Yes, you are. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a historian monkey, you know. Um, but what I discovered was very straightforward, that they were, there was one group, which was women need to be erased. And we are seeing that in Afghanistan at the moment, for example, or possibly Iran. Uh, there are other people who were like, okay, there were some women there, but they weren't doing anything. The next one was there were women there and they were helping a bit, but they weren't very important to that. was very significant in science. And then the fourth category was there were some women who were exceptional, but all the other women were just sitting around doing nothing. 
And so out of that, I kind of had a sense of how the book should be written and just the idea that it would be joyous to put some of the women back. And Shirley Chisholm, the great politician in America, who was the first uh, black woman to run for the Democratic nomination for president of the United States. And she had this wonderful phrase, which was, if they won't give you a seat at the table, bring your own folding chair. And actually, in the end, that's what this book is about, that there are brilliant and beautiful and wonderful men. And they're also brilliant and beautiful and wonderful women. And we were all there together, always. Always the women were there. So let's just put all of us back. That, that's so fascinating. I'm, I always think about Antonia Fraser when she wrote a book about the 17th century woman. And she said that people said to her, but were there any women in the 17th century? Because people <laughs> thought, that, as you said, women were doing nothing. And, and so, but why have women been left out of history? Well, I mean, Seabag's book is amazing. And, you know, they, they are very good companion pieces, I would say, in some ways. But in a way, it's not complicated that most of history, the powers of writing and learning have been in the hands of a very small number of people. And that's been mostly religious institutions. It's mostly been academic institutions. And they have been places where only men were allowed. So, you know, the first chapter in my book is about writers, because if women are not allowed to write their own history, then we will vanish because the things that are seen as significant will not be registering on the radar, if you like. But at the same time, I think it's really important to understand, and this is what Seabag's book does really well as in addition, is that it's not just about whether you're famous at the time or whether the history is recorded at the time. It's how it is then subsequently put into the public eye. And I think that what happens often with women, and particularly with legacy, and particularly with women, many of whom choose not to marry because they would lose any rights they had, but consequently they have no family to necessarily kind of put their work out in the world, is that it's not just the not known women who vanish. So look at uh, Mary Seacole, for example. Uh, she was as famous in her day as Florence Nightingale. They were both incredibly important in terms of nursing and what they were doing. Florence Nightingale was an extraordinary statistician. She invented the pie chart, for example. Uh, Mary Seacole was the most incredibly pioneering woman of colour, and she was so famous in her day. But then she died, and that was it. Nobody cared. Nobody was protecting her legacy. So a lot of why women vanish from history is not about their contemporaneous success, or visibility. It's about what happens and who curates their story after they've died. Fascinating, fascinating. And see about this book, this huge, this huge book, The World History, you wrote this in lockdown. So we've got two books that were written in lockdown, those tough times that we are thankful that we are no longer in. And in this book, you use family history to narrate world history. And you've written about families before, you've written about dynasties, and how did you find that family history, that looking at families and dynasties was a, was a way to approach this huge, huge topic of the history of the world? Well, I mean, I always love world histories. And obviously, I've written a lot of biographies. The challenge is a lot of world histories, they're all about commodities and trade routes and industrial and technical advances. But the humans are slightly missing from it. And at the same time, biographies have too much detail. So I wanted to come up with a way to combine the span of world history with the intimacy of biography, to capture that continuity. And I thought of families as the best way to do it. You know, in 21st century history writing also, you know, we want to be as diverse as possible. Well, family is a brilliant way to look at hybridity. And I decided immediately whether I was dealing with the Incas or the, or the Dahomean royal family, the Mongols or the Ming, I would treat them exactly the same as I treated the Saxe-Coburgs or the Habsburgs. And so that was one part of it, a diversity. And the other part of it was gender, was women who are quite rightly being put back in the history. You, Kate W, you've written, you know, many brilliant female biographies. And Kate M, you've just done this now, which is very complimentary to mine. They should really be read together. So family, of course, is a wonderful way to put women back in the history. But, but by family, I don't mean keeping women in that completely their familial role, you know, as was their traditional place, quite the contrary. I mean, this book looks at women who were, who were artists, who were leaders, who were historians. And 
The whole point is, is just the way to capture the narrative of history, to provide a spine, to provide a tether, to talk about you know, serious ideas, um, the things that change history, but also to capture the humanity, the, the juice, the grit of human life. And you know, one of the great pleasures of writing this crazy book has been you know, finding women and bringing them out and putting them where they belong. And whereas Kate M says, you know, they, where they often weren't in their own time, they were there, but people derived no principle from their success and just moved on. And I think just to go back to your question to Kate, you know, it was the fact that all of the history was written overwhelmingly by men. And, you know, and, and throughout my book, I mean, I had to deal with history that was completely written by men, completely unempathetic to women. And reading it, one had to sort of analyze it and say, is any of this true? Can this be true? And given that we have nothing else, what can we derive from this? And of course, I was expert at that in the sense that I'd written about Catherine the Great before, whose reputation has been an enormous victim of male history and the British crash in the 18th century, incidentally. My book contains lots of the same people as Kate's does. <laughs> it does. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of overlap in the best possible way, by the way. And I also think mine is also for exactly like hers, or the, it has the women that you've heard of, Catherine the Great and Mary Queen of Scots and Mrs. Thatcher, but it also has, I hope, a lot of women that people won't have heard of and people should have, and it's great to introduce readers to them. And also what you say, Seabag, if you don't mind me jumping in, is um, that idea of who tells the story. So one of the women in my book is, you know, Theodora Byzantium. And we know most about her because of Procopius, who wrote three different biographies of her. The first biography, she was basically a prostitute and he hated her and she thought she was sleeping her way to the top. The next one, he decided that she was kind of quite a good wife, <laughs> um, but she should not get involved in affairs of state. And the third one, she is one of the greatest women that's ever lived. She has entirely saved this, uh, you know, this, this whole civilization. And the thing that's really interesting about that is if only one of those had survived, that would be the view we had of Theodora. But all three survived. So we can see that it was one historian who changed his view over 40 years. And that, of course, is what you and I and, and Kate W wrestle with all the time that historians, well, as Simon Sharma once said, are notorious liars. Very true. And, you know, there's a fascinating question is how, when it, all of these women have been written about by men, and also sometimes at a, at a long time gap, isn't it? There's a long time gap until they are written by, where is it that we find the truth? And some of the women who have obviously been excluded totally from history, some of these voices that have been totally excluded, the working classes, the enslaved, ordinary people. It, it's very difficult. How do we hear their voices too, which is incumbent upon us as historians to hear their voices. And Simon, you write a lot about slavery, about empire. So you write about the elites, but you also write about those who suffered at their hands. Yeah. I mean, I've got characters like Sally Hammond, you know, who was the enslaved sister-in-law of Thomas Jefferson. Her story really does enlighten us and illuminate the nature of slavery and how intimate slavery could be between the slave owners and the slave themselves. I mean, Sally Hemming was the sister, the half-sister, in fact, of Mrs. Jefferson. And so Mrs. Jefferson owned her own sister um, as a human chattel, which is just extraordinary. And then when she died, um, she, she traveled out to France to see Jefferson, who was ambassador of the, of the nascent American Republic in Paris, and began an affair with him. And he was many years older. And... Um, obviously, it's just impossible to know how much coercion and if there was any affection there at all between these two. We just don't know. And she left very few writings or no writing. We only know the basics about what she thought about things. But the few things we do know about her show that she acted with great courage and um, forcing Jefferson to promise that she and her children would be freed on his death. And she had four surviving children with him. So she's a fascinating character. And one of the pleasures of being able to write this sort of book is to treat the Jeffersons and the Hemings, both as families, the dynasties in a sense that we should know about. After all, we're all members. We're all members of dynasties. That's one of the great things. I think an interesting example, Kate N, you were mentioning Theodora. And I think the histories that were written of Theodora are interesting. I think another side of, another way to look at Procopius is that his day job was working for the, for the court for, and for Belisarius, the top general. 
and he had to write these kind of sycophantic histories. He obviously hated his day job and hated his bosses, which is something that many people can identify with. So kind of at night in secret, he risked his life by writing this incredibly libelous and vicious portrayal of Theodora um, as a sort of imperial prostitute. But the opposite case to that is the most famous woman of all in history is Cleopatra, who despite having all her history written by men and being banned by the Roman Senate, whose reputation among feminists is incredibly high, despite a sort of quite unsuccessful career and a vicious kill and murderous of her own family and husbands and brothers and sisters, and, and a career that actually failed, and yet whose reputation continues to grow. So yeah. there are exceptions to this rule. But also, I mean, the irony, you're right, Seabag, the irony about that is, and it's one of the things I write about in my first chapter about writers, is that there are many women that we know from history and are beloved to us because of artists, not because of historians and not because of what they did. And in a way, one I would say, one of the reasons that Cleopatra's reputation is as it is, is because of Shakespeare. Mm, that's true. Not actually the historians at all. It's about the artists. Yeah. And another is because, you know, as, as time has gone on, we, we, we kind of prize and um, revere love. We, have, we love the idea of the great love affair. And she had two of the great love affairs with two of the greatest men in history. So I think it's a double irony given that she'd become a great feminist heroine um, whose reputation, now that we do much more female history, has actually grown enormously. Um, so I think she's a very ironic exception to all the rules, but you're absolutely yeah. right about Shakespeare. And Joan of Arc as well, actually. Joan I of mean, Arc. In a way, many people know Joan of Arc because of Bernard Shaw's quite extraordinary play. And those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, you know, Joan Littlewood there, the one tiny woman surrounded by those 12 inquisitors, you know, that image um, mm. has done an enormous amount for the Joan of Arc story. But Actually, she was a vanished person for many, many hundreds of years in history. So that's why the artists matter. You know, all of us putting those people back centre stage with um, a backstory, if you like, which doesn't necessarily exist in the archives. Yes, and it's fascinating. Um, one of my questions was about Cleopatra and art and different perceptions of Cleopatra, so I'm glad we got onto that. I mean, it, it does interest me, and it's, it's a fascinating question about how we do see Cleopatra and and the question of her being a failure, I think, is very interesting, isn't it? Because how was it possible for anyone to have succeeded against the heft of the Roman Empire? And how much was it a love affair with Caesar? And how much was she using it as a political strategy to try and save her country? It, 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 we, you know, obviously, we lost so much of the accounts about her. So we are very much at the mercy of the Romans and very much at the mercy of Shakespeare, who did want the great love affair. Whether or not that was really what was happening in the case is... We, and, we, and it's very hard to know. And, and we writers do so much control to what we do. So it's so important, I think, Kate, that you start your book with this big section on writers and really point out to us that the first name writer in history was a woman. Well, obviously, there's a, a level of is this true or not? But most people accept that the first named writer was Ahedjuana in the 23rd century BCE. And nobody quite knows why, but before that, in terms of uh, people writing, priests and priestesses, writing temple hymns for the gods and goddesses they were worshipping, they didn't sign their names, but Ahedjuana did. But what I love about this story is that the reason, partly, we know about this is that the biggest selling author in world history is also a woman, Agatha Christie. And... She was married in her second marriage to Max Mallowan, who is um, an archaeologist, and he was friends with Catherine Len Woolley, and they were the people who excavated you in Samaria and found the tile. And so I just love, you know, obviously I would because I'm a novelist, but I love that uh, connection, that the idea that the first named author in history was a woman. I, I partly love that we too. Know about, isn't it amazing? You know, I love they, that circularity. Yeah. I mean, it's just joyous. And even if it's, you know, when, of course we can't prove these things. But, you know, you, Kate, and you, Seabag, we all are paddling in the same waters here, which is that you can't necessarily prove everything to 100%. But it's like the great uh, ghost story writer, M.R. James, said when he was asked if he believed in ghosts. And he said, if I'm given enough evidence to convince me, I will believe it. And you just have to, at some moment, go, okay, that story seems plausible. 
that piece of history seems plausible. And I think this issue about women writing and owning the story is incredibly important because we are seeing at the moment, uh, this is why history matters, because it's used now to justify persecution now and prejudice now. Um, looking back to the past saying, well, women never did this or people of colour never did this or, you know, what, whatever it is. So that's why it matters what all of us do to say, let's just go back to common sense. Let's just look at what is likely to have been true. Sorry, that was a terrible clue perfect, but you know what I mean. Um, because it does matter because we shouldn't say, well, women never did this or, you know, whoever never did that without being absolutely sure it was the case. And, you know, it's the subtitle of my book, Women Also Built the World. I think, um, can I just jump in there about Ahead Moana? Because she's such a fascinating character. She's so um, interesting. I, she's a fascinating I'm so glad you mentioned the um, KM. Because when I start my book with her, when I sort of read about and started studying her, I realized that she was sort of a key person. Um, but she was really, the, she was like, not only the first named author, I think her poetry or our hymns in the translations that we have, um, are they a fascinating, inspiring? They're, was, they're, they're lovely writing. They're amazing writing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, some of the imagery is, is incredibly powerful. There's also, the, there's also the fascinating, she was a member of the first really kind of dynasty, the first dynasty that we can really know. She was the daughter of, of Sargon, you know, one of the great conquerors, one of the first great conquerors um, who built up the Akkad kingdom. And she was herself very important, a high priestess, and in a time when temples were huge, big power centers. And she may well have been the object of sexual abuse. And she, you know, she may well have been raped. She may have been talking metaphorically, but it sounds like to me, um, you know, and again, we just have, we really have her words to no one knows any more than those words on, on, the, on the trials that were discovered. But it sounds like, you know, so she's the first writer, the first woman to, who wrote about her sexual abuse. So she's a kind of key figure for modern times as well. And, and again, a great place. She was a great place for me to start. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why, uh, well, you know, in a way, our books are companion pieces because there are so many women we could talk about, but also there are uh, what you might call linchpins all the way through of certain moments where somebody stepped up and wrote something or did something that we should know about. Because it, it's, you know, for me, history is like a massive tent. You know, it's, it's all of those moments. And it's incredibly important to go back as far as we can and listen, because truthfully, the experiences that we all have now and the things that, you know, we're struggling with all of us at the moment. I mean, the world is an ugly place at the moment and complicated and a slightly fractured place, but we've seen it all before. So if we go back to history, then we can see how we came out of those things. And I think that's very important too. I should say that another sort of interesting fact, we talked about love um, and the, and the influence, because we especially, particularly, we revere love enormously now uh, in, in our present time. And I think an emotion. And I think another interesting feature of the portrayal of women is their tragic death. You know, one thing, thinks of Princess Diana, for example. One thinks of Joan of Arc and um, Cleopatra and the Asp. I mean, all of these are kind of set pieces, if you like, that, um, again, are, are sort of are easily grasped and, and, and in a way have decided um, the way these women are portrayed, given the fact that so much of history is kind of written backwards when we know the end. And I think that's also another reason why, for example, Cleopatra Mary Queen of Scots and others are, are portrayed, Joan of Arc are portrayed as kind of revered characters. Fascinating. And so, Simon, you, you're telling the story in your book of so many magnificent dynasties, so many incredible characters. At the beginning of um, Act 11, so we have Barbar, who's 22 and raids India for the first time in 1505. He was a minor prince compared to the, and he's the he's the great great grandson of Tamburlaine, who who had sacked Delhi. And what he showed is how these big dynasties pass down power, but they change, don't they? Dynasties change. That's an interesting thing, is that the dynasties, the reason why, I mean, one has to ask oneself, you know, why is family the preponderant system of ruling for virtually all of human history? 
And when we hesitate now and say, well, this is a very, that sounds very old fashioned. I mean, is that really true now? There's a huge wave of what I call dynastic reversion now. I mean, dynasties are coming back, particularly in Asia and in Africa and in the Middle East and all over those regions. Family clan politics is returning. And it's only in the sort of the exceptional secular sort of northern democracies, really, that, 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 and, and, and America, that, that isn't the case. So family remains of an important part of government. And in many parts of the world, I mean, you only have to look at Pakistan now, for example, Cambodia, or, you know, the election of Marcos in Philippines, you know, the Kenyatta's in Kenya. I mean, I'm just jumping around the world at random there. But, you know, there's a huge return to family power. I mean, I follow some of the families like the Kim family in North Korea and the Assads, the Sauds, not to speak of the Trumps. But I think that you know, people crave continuity. And I think that they've always liked the reassurance of a familiar name in power in many parts of the world. We, we, don't, we don't particularly like it in our actual politicians now. But, you know, look at, the, look at India, for example, you know, 60 or 70 years were dominated by one family, the Nir and Gandhi family. So both in democracies and in the sort of autocracies, I mean, different ways, family power remains important. And of course, women are hugely important in those structures. And that's, you know, many of the women in my book are powerful mothers or wives um, of sons. And some of them are just extraordinary. I mean, take Cossem, for example, you know, in the, in the 17th century. You know, when we had James I, Charles I, Cromwell, the Ottoman Empire, which was the biggest sort of empire, in, in, you know, um, stretched from the borders of Morocco to the borders of Iran, was dominated by a woman that we've never heard of, Kossem, who starts life as an enslaved woman and ends up as the empress of this vast empire. And it sometimes gives you an idea of the sort of Anglo-centricity of our education. That, you know, while our tiny island is having these little civil war, this woman who we've never, most people have never heard of, um, and who starts off as a slave, is actually the sort of the arbiter and dominating political leader. So, you know, she's the sort of character that it's fun to narrate. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. What I liked a lot is how you put at the beginning of each chapter, the number, uh, the beach section, how, how big the population is roughly at the time. And you obviously write, you know, so acutely about how they handed down through families. And how does this change as the population gets bigger? I mean, I mean, obviously that's the one fascinating thing. There were so few people originally, which is why the book is a bit like a pyramid in the sense that it gets bigger. And the book, there's more, much more about native times because, you know, there are now 8 billion people. There are, two, there are two sorts of families in the book. There's the nuclear families, 
you know, the family of mother and father, which most of us have, which has remained essentially the same. But the roles in the family have changed enormously according to whether women work in the family, work in the house or go out, to, you know, when they start to go out to factories. But that changes the whole nature of you know, family, for example. Power families um, they are the other sort of family and they change according to the nature of politics. And they're incredibly flexible. You know, they start off as sort of regarded as divine, then appointed by divine right. Then they become, then they, they change to, to represent nations and then to represent the mass age of politics. So they're always changing. That's one of the interesting things. And that's why family is a useful way of, um, of approaching history. I'm just going to turn to Kate now. And so you alternate, Kate, these, these fascinating, brilliant women, these women who warrior queens, revolutionaries, you also alternate them with Lily. And tell us a bit about Lily. Well, I think the thing for me is that, you know, I love Seabag's book and I love the idea of dynasty and families. But also I'm very interested in the women who just did their thing. You know, there's been a couple of questions on the Q&A about, um, you know, asking essentially if the women who did everything were married to somebody famous or, you know, that was where they got their power from. And of course, there is a great deal of that because that's how history has been written. Um, but a huge number of people, I've got nearly a thousand women in my book, were there because they did it themselves. Nothing to do with anybody else. And my great-grandmother, Lily, um, what I discovered when I was in lockdown and I started to think about this book and wanted a spine for the book, which was, why would I write this book? There are lots of books celebrating women in history, so what could I add to this? And then discovering that I'd always thought I was a kind of trailblazer, if you like, in a family of very straightforward, you know, teachers, priests, vicars, lawyers, you know, that was my family history so far as I knew. But then I discovered that actually my great-grandmother had been a really famous novelist in her day, but had completely disappeared from the record. So none of her books were in print. Uh, you wouldn't find any reference to her in any biographies of Victorian literature. But when her most famous novel, The Vicar of Langthorpe, was published in 1893, uh, the Prime Minister himself, Gladstone, wrote to the Times to say, it's enormously to be celebrated that there is a new novel from Lily Watson. So in a way, it was me asking a question. My book is about asking a question. It's like, how did women vanish so completely? How is it that most people still think it's all right to say, oh yeah, but they're only famous because they were married to somebody or they were the mother of somebody and genuinely believe that. They genuinely think that all women that we know in history are significant because of the men around them rather than what they might have done themselves. And so I learned so many things. I firstly learned that most stuff that you find on the internet is wrong, obviously. Um, True. Yeah. So, you know, the people put their own family histories on there and they might be, you know, accurate and they might not be. Um, but I also uh, discovered, you know, an extraordinary piece of family history that all of the men in my family were hemophiliac. Most of them died very young. And it was bizarre to know that there was this very significant family history that nobody had ever talked to me about, you know, because it, they didn't think it mattered somehow. And so, you know, for me, uh, you know, I mostly, as you know, with my fiction and my nonfiction, I don't write about the famous women. I don't write about the queens and the women at court and the lovers and the wives and the women who were around the religious leaders or the military leaders, because that is mostly what history's been. But 99% of us were not those people. So that was very interesting to me to realize how incredibly easily huge family stories were lost. And the one thing I would say, and I don't know if you think this Seabag and you think this Kate, is I feel concern about history going forward because much of what I have been uh, researching has been letters, has been books, has been notebooks, it's been physical objects that I've been able to go and see and touch and have felt connected um, through that moment. But so much of what is happening now is electronic. Um, it's on emails. It's in, you know, it, it doesn't exist except in the virtual world. Yeah, and what happens when the power runs out? 
What what are we going to do? Yeah. We're not going to have any history, are we? I think what that's right. What do you right. think, Steve? I think that's right. I mean, that's one of the great, well, I mean, we exist in a wonder, we've existed in a wonderful 500 year golden spot, if you like, yeah. where, where people, from the time that this paper became available and ink, and ink pens and the ink became um, commonplace, paper became cheap. Um, People have written letters and it reached a sort of climax in the 18th, 19th century with the diary writing and letter writing, um, when people wrote all night and all night writing um, letters. And we have some of those letters and it enables you to write great history. I mean, we were talking about, you know, we were talking about great women rulers who made their own destiny. What happened the greatest example, but she was, a, she called herself a graphomaniac and while most of the time when we're writing about the private lives of women and, and men, we're guessing. And we know from the Daily Mail or whatever that you know, 50% of what, what we think is happening is actually wrong a lot of the time. Um, but the great thing about Letters of Catherine the Great, for example, in her love affair with Prince Potemkin and others is we have the letters. So we know, you know which, which, um, which is wonderful. We can look into the souls and secret lives of these people. But I wanted to just come... Just follow you up before we go on the questions, just to say, you know, because one of the questions which I was looking at, which is a very good question, whoever wrote it is, you know, were the women, were the women who weren't sort of anybody, you know, were the wives or mothers or princes or, you know, widows of kings who became great? And are they in your books? And there are lots of them in Kay Dem's book. And there are lots of them in mine. And many of them are writers. And you were mentioning um, your answer to the novelist. I mean, I just wanted to mention people like, you know, Bam Zhao of um, the, the, the historian who completed the history of China in the first century um, during the Han Dynasty. Um, her brother wrote, her brother started the history and died and she finished it and was the, was the top advisor um, to, to the emperors and empresses of the time. So she's a, you know, and also we've got people like Lady Murasaki in Japan um, and we've got Artemisia Gentileschi and we've got all these fascinating characters. So Florence Boot. Right, Do you know Florence Boot? No, I don't. But I probably should. Well, Florence Boot, she's, a, she's one of my quiet revolutionaries. She was married to a chemist. You see where I'm going here? Yeah, I do. Um, who uh, she said, first of all, could we sell things that women would like in the chemist shop uh, and, you know, things that would help women? And then she realized that in Nottingham, where the Boots, the chemist, was based, there were an enormous number of incredibly bright and wonderful uh, women who had to leave school, girls who had to leave school at 14 uh, to go and start working. And so she said, why don't we set up um, a lending library so that those young women continue to read what they want and, uh, you know, engage with the world, even if they have had to leave school at 14 because, you know, they, they, they can't stay on at school. And by the Second World War, Boots Lending Library, founded by Florence Boot, 38,000 books a week were being lent out, almost all to girls and women. So nobody knows her. Absolutely incredible. This is absolutely fascinating. And I have thousands more questions in here as well. And I, I know that um, you know, so many of these questions are touching on things that we're about to talk about anyway. So, so I feel like a monster interrupting, but I'm just going to move to this first question. So to what extent does powerful women have to overturn the more ways of the time to get to the top? That's one of our questions. To either of you. I, I think actually, um, you know, in terms of many of the women I write about, people always say, you know, were they better leaders than men? Were they different? Did they have to be, I mean, did they have to be kind of rebels? Not always. A lot of the time they reflected their time exactly as men did. They behaved often like men, like men did. And this is the answer that people expect. Um, and they were often as useless as men too. You know, some of them were, they, they were, there were women who were brilliant, who were brilliant and, and there were women, there were women who were tons worse than men. And they're all, you know, they're all in, in, in my book. I actually think they, they didn't always have to act differently, but they often had to mimic male behavior. If that's, you know, maybe what this, per, this question is hinting at. They often had to, I mean, you look at people like, um, you know, Egyptian pharaoh, pharaohs um, uh, uh, or, or, you know, or Isabella of, Castile, for example, there's a question about her too. Who is being mentioned? Um, there's a question here saying, was she the most influential woman yeah. ever? And Elizabeth with, you know, Elizabeth sort of wearing her arm and talking about the stomach of a king. Oftentimes women leaders had to sort of behave like pastiches of men. But in terms of politics, they, you know, they, they, were, they were as good as men, as bad as men. 
you know, no better, no worse, I believe. Yeah, and I, I would add to that that um, history is a pendulum. Uh, we have this lovely idea, and I, uh, God, you know, I'm an idealist. I wish this, this was true, that we learn everything generation on generation and things get better. But it doesn't. We can see this. It goes backwards and forwards. So it's, I would say, in addition to what Seabag said, it's about money and property and class. So women in the Middle Kingdom and the New Kingdom in Egypt had absolutely as much power as any man around them because it was about, did you own your property? Did you have money? And then things went backwards. In 13th century France that I write about in the Southwest, in Longadoc, um, within the uh, areas that were uh, essentially Cathar, uh, girls and boys, women and men had the same rights over property. But in the rest of France and England at that time, it was pre-regenitor, which meant that the eldest son got everything. So it's not just about whether women have to adopt different points of view and different behaviours. It's just that history is entirely different depending on the period of time you're in. And that's really important because I would say as the, you know, married to a, a man and with a son and a daughter and a grandson and all of these things is that surely all of this is about everybody being able to be the person they want to be. That you don't yeah. have to, you know, that men can be gentle and gorgeous and lovely and soft and kind and women can be courageous and slightly battling. Can't you just do that? So I, I don't think that there is a sense that women had to adopt male behavior. I think it depends entirely on the period of history you're looking at. And when you look at um, uh, sort of First Nation countries in uh, North America and Canada, who have a very different structure of male and female power, and then you see, well, it's, it's just about characteristics. It's just about who is best at doing this, that, and the other. So I think if we could all just kind of, in a way, step away from the preconceptions about what a man is and what a woman is, we would all be a lot happier, frankly. I agree. I second I'm going to move to the next question because we've just got a few minutes left. So is there a common strand in the context of these important women that allow them to flourish in their day and, and their positive reputations endured? Do you find a common strand or is it, as Kate was saying, that it varies from time to time? I think it varies from time to time. I think Kate's answered that very well. I mean, you only have to look, just to sort of throw out another example, is like, you know, the women in, in, in the steppe empires were incredibly free, um, like, in, like in the Tang Dynasty in China. You had these women that were sort of very relaxed, were happily riding, hunting, playing polo, sending each other male, young male lovers um, with recommendations saying, this guy is amazing. I'm trying him. Literally, you know, a thousand years later in China, rather, you have the beginning or binding of feet and women are confined completely to the home. So it, you're absolutely right. It's, not, it's circular or pendulum-like and certainly not a progression. I would, I would add to that um, that there is, I would say, one characteristic and it's persistence. It's just that idea that, you know what, you're not putting up with this. And it, it could be faith, it could be conservation, it could be um, inventing, it could be exploration, it could be law, it could be medicine. But the idea that, no, I'm not going to accept that I'm not allowed to do this. And so I think resistance is very clear. And fearlessness. Yeah. And it, it could be a quiet fearlessness, like Florence Booth, or it could be, you know, exactly, it could be the Edinburgh Seven in medicine who, you know, went to their exams in the Surgeon's Hall in you know, 19th century Edinburgh and they were pelted by dung and the, um, all sorts of things. They had baying mob, but they still went in and did their exam. And because they, the men who were uh, attacking them behaved so badly, that was that wonderful law of unintended consequences. And actually everybody else who was relatively normal thought, if the men who are doing this behaving that badly, then maybe we should change the rules to let women be doctors. Yeah, but so the same thing, the same thing, but the same thing worked the other way around in, in Tang China and in, and in Romanov Russia very quickly. It was cent a century of female leadership caused such a backlash, often with incredible yeah. cruelty, female cruelty that, and women were banned from power for a long yeah, time yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And we're seeing that now, I think, backlash. Right. Next question. Quickly from both. 
Given the existence of powerful women throughout history, Cleopatra, Boudicca, why do the importance of the male heir persist for so long? Well, I mean, Seabag will be able to answer this more properly than I will. But I would say that it's, you know, we know. We know how history works. Um, but history is about shoring up power very straightforwardly. And so providing stability. Yeah, yeah. And so that it's very straightforward. It's like, you know, some societies think that the male heir is the only thing that matters. Uh, you know, Kate W., you've, you know, spoken so much about this and so eloquently and beautifully about why that is a silly idea because it should be the best person for the job. It's also to do with war. A lot of it is to do with war and leading armies. And even when you had very powerful um, women like Elizabeth of Russia or em- Empress Wu or, or, or even Bodicea, they, they, they often didn't need their troops into battle themselves. And they had men to do that. And men still had to lead armies. So that's another reason. But let's go on. So less think, fighting. That's the message. The answer is less fighting. It would be, it would be better, of course. And... So another, so another question we'll have to do quite quickly. Um, who was the greatest female warrior? Boudicca, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Joan of Arc, or someone else? I think no, I think my answer would be um, Saida al-Hura, the, um, the, the, oh, Moroccan, yes. the Moroccan pirate queen yeah, um, yeah. Who, who terrorized the, um, the, the Western Mediterranean in, 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 the, um, in, in the reign of Philip II um, and, and that, that period. And I think she's a fascinating character. And um, I think she takes that biscuit. And also, since Morocco is playing in the World Cup, um, I think we should. I think we should choose her just for that reason alone. And she, she's, in, she's in Seabag's book and in my book. I would add another couple of pirate queens and Bonnie and Mary Reed, who are not queens at all. They were, you know, women who were forced to dress as men and chose to dress as men, and they were completely notorious. They are Kira Knightley. Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, late 17th century. Um, I agree. But, yeah. And they were, you know, su- very exciting. And, you know, my new novel, uh, The Ghost Ship, is entirely inspired by those two, you know, really properly rumbustious women who just did their thing. What a pair. Fantastic. And one last question, and then we, because the, the football is off, we've got a few minutes left. Did powerful women depend on the weakness of the men in their lives to gain power? Sometimes. I mean, you know, but it wasn't just about power. I mean, my, I mean, Kate, Kate M's talked about her relative. My proudest name drop is that I'm related to Rosalind Franklin, who is in oh, all, well. who is in all our books. She was actually not well served by the men around her, um, who, who, who gave her research to her competitors. And, you know, she was an extremely strong character. So I think she's an, ex- an example of something different. So not always is the answer. No, and I think. In a way, it's an interesting question. The fact that that is a question that was asked at all kind of says why Seabag's written his book and I've written my book. There's always this idea that women are there because the men who were standing next to them. And in science, it's called the Matilda effect. Um, It was uh, a a phrase coined by Margaret Roster in the 1990s because most of the science writing was written by men. So they thought that all the women who were in science were just holding coats. And it came, you know, absolutely out of someone like Lise Meitner, who was denied the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1944, and Otto Hahn was given it, even though he said, she did the work, I was holding her coat. Um, so I think that we just need to move away from that idea that there was just, there's always been one story. The truth is that men and women have always been here together, shoulder to shoulder. And if we can just put all of the people back into history, Shirley Chisholm, bring your own folding chair, then we would have a much clearer sense of who we are, how we got here, and how we could make things better. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. It's been such a privilege to speak to you two incredible authors. These two brilliant books, as I said, the companion pieces, obviously shopping time is coming up. We've got the world, we've got warrior queens and quiet revolutionaries, both described as brilliant, staggering, magnificent. So snap these up. Um, they are absolutely brilliant. And it's been an amazing evening listening to all these things incredible points. We've all learned so much. And I just have a few fun questions to finish. And then we are finished with this wonderful event. Very quick questions. So just on the, some of the characters in your books to both of you. So very quick, short answers. Who in your book would be best at social media, Twitter, TikTok? Which character from both of them? Oh, and I say Emily Bronte would put like weird gothic tweets. What do you think? Um, well, I, I'm going to nominate, nominate Ban Chow, who I worked with mentioned earlier. 
um, because I think that her short advice on on how to be a woman would work very well on um, on media, even on on Twitter, even though she only existed in the sort of first century AD. And I'd go for Josephine Cochrane, who in eighteen ninety three was clearly utterly pissed off about nobody clearing up. She went to a shed at the back of a garden in Chicago and invented the dishwasher. And she was like really <laughs> on message. And I think she would be very, very good at engaging with the modern world. Love it. Who told the biggest lie in your book and got away with it? Well, I think to do it women, I think Lewitt Grand Bishop of Cremona has to take that, take the biscuit for calling Marozia um, in, the, in the 10th century, for calling her, you know, calling her the, the great whore and creating the idea of a pornocracy of the papacy. That is a big lie. She was most probably a great stateswoman. And um, so he takes that dark prize for me. He's a liar. He's a liar. Yeah, and I wouldn't say a liar, but um, we think of Florence Nightingale. Um, she's got so many very complicated views, but also did some extraordinary things. And this is the important thing about women. Women's place in history can't be about likability. But actually, Florence Nightingale, more than nursing, she was an amazing statistician and she invented the pie chart. So the lie is that we remember Florence Nightingale for nursing, but we probably should remember her for maths. And finally, in your book, who would have given the best present? Who, who, who would you think? Okay, I'm getting a present off them. That's going to be really good. Okay, I have to mention too, one a woman, one a man. Catherine the Great, of course, gave the most amazing presents that have ever been. Um, but I also think Harun al-Rashid, the caliph of 9th century Baghdad, was the other person I would love to get presents from. And I would get, probably go for Egeria. Uh, you know, I come from a background of a lot of uh, women of faith. My aunt was one of the founders for the movement of the ordination of women. And so Egeria, in the 4th century, she went on a pilgrimage and wrote many letters back to her sisters, as she called them, back home. And I suspect she would have nicked a bit of the burning bush, probably a bit of, you know, the temple. Um, yeah, I mean, she she was, I, 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 don't, I don't know why. I've just always thought Jerry was probably quite light-fingered. So she would give good presents when she got back because she would have nicked all the stuff from the Holy Well, that is brilliant. It's been a fantastic evening. Thank you so much. But so grateful for you for joining us, your wonderful company, for your fantastic questions. And thank you so much. It's been so gripping, all these generous, generous answers you've given to us, this insight into your fantastic books. My thanks to Kate Moss and Simon Sinbad-Montefiore and to the dear audience and Intelligence Squared. Thank you all so much. Mm-hmm.